A number of years ago, God gave my wife a very specific vision for a prayer garden. A place where people could come and experience a few moments of rest and renewal and reflection in the midst of life's busyness. God even gave her a name for this prayer garden, the Lavender Pavilion. And we spent a lot of time praying about that vision. And we looked for ways to get that project going in Southern California where we used to live. But despite lots of prayer and despite our best efforts, it never came together. Yet even though that vision never came to fruition, we kept praying. When we moved here to Oregon, we realized that we owned a home with enough property where we could build that prayer garden right where we lived. And so we started to clear an old unused pasture, clearing out the weeds and the thistles and the blackberries. Lots and lots of blackberries. It was a huge amount of work, and at times it was disheartening. But finally, one December, the land was clear, and we now had a parcel of empty dirt ready to start. And yet, as we looked at that empty pasture and thought of all the work ahead, we wondered if we could do it. We wondered if this was the right way to invest our time and our energy and our finances. And so we prayed and asked God very specifically to show us if this was what he wanted us to do and where he wanted us to do it. That was in December. And the next spring, God gave us an amazingly clear sign. As things began to bloom that spring, right in the middle of that pasture, a flower blossomed. In an empty field where previously no flowers had grown, we had one single lavender-colored blossom. A lavender-covered bloom for the lavender pavilion. A unique plant. A miracle in our eyes. Now we had... We'd asked some people to pray with us, and we shared that story with them, and some of them immediately tried to explain it away. Oh, that flower coming up, that was just a coincidence. You know, maybe a bird flew over the pasture and just dropped a seed. We've seen some some moles on your property. Maybe a mole carried, you know, a seed or something that caused that flower to bloom. You see, it was hard for them to accept that God had actually answered that prayer. And they were far more comfortable with human explanations than spiritual ones. Now, I fully accept that God could have used natural means to give us that spiritual answer. God could have also done it completely supernaturally. And the fact is, I don't really care how God did it. Because we prayed a specific prayer and we got a specific vivid answer. And yet some of the people praying with us and praying for us had doubts. And I'm not criticizing them. I understand that. There's been plenty of times when I have prayed with doubts, when I have struggled with doubts. And when it comes to prayer, doubt is a very common problem. I think it's normal to have some periodic doubts as we communicate with a God that we can't even see. 
I think there are times in life and situations in life when we wonder as we pray, is God really listening and is he actually going to respond? It's natural to doubt. But I believe that doubt by itself isn't really the problem. I think the problem is when we let doubt keep us from believing our prayers. The problem is when we let doubt keep us from accepting the answers that God gives us. And if you and I want to have a robust experience with prayer, then we must learn to deal with our doubts. And we're going to take a start at doing that this morning by looking at a biblical principle about doubt and then look at some biblical examples that show us how to deal with doubt. These examples will help us learn how we can pray and trust God even in those moments when we have doubt. We're going to start in the book of James. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. If you have a Bible, you can open there. And if not, you'll see the passage here on the screen. James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. At first glance, it may seem like this passage is implying that if we have any doubts at all, then we shouldn't expect God to respond to our prayers. However, I don't think that's an accurate way to understand what James is saying. Throughout this entire book, James is making the case that faith results in a changed life. And so he's not talking about that very common doubt that exists in our minds, the kind of doubt where we argue with ourselves. He's writing about doubt that is revealed when there's a gap between what we pray and how we live. James describes this as being double-minded. Double-minded people experience a disconnect between their heads and their actions. And therefore, from the standpoint of faith, they are unstable. Here's a way to visualize that. Let's think of a man whose mind is just befuddled by too much alcohol after a night of drinking. And he leaves the bar where he's been drinking, and he veers down the street. Now, in his mind... He'd like to be able to walk in a straight line, but he can't. You see, his mind says one thing. His unstable behavior says another. We can apply that analogy to prayer. Double-minded people may pray for wisdom, but then once they say amen, they will act as if they've never prayed at all. They will go out and try and solve problems all on their own, in their own way, according to their own timetable, relying on their own wisdom. So despite what they say, and despite how they pray, their behavior really is not much different from that of a non-believer. Their doubt is revealed by their life because they don't live as if they actually believe their own prayers. They're not trusting their prayers to change how they live. 
Christian author Paul Miller calls this functional unbelief. Functional unbelief. That's when we don't really believe and act on our prayers. We don't really expect God's going to do much of anything. And if God does respond, we're not necessarily ready to believe the answers that we're given because we're not really looking for them. And that's why James wants us to deal with our doubts. He doesn't want doubt to lead us to a point where we're praying ritualistically and just going through the motions. He wants us not to doubt, but to believe our prayers and to live accordingly. Now that's the principle. And now we're going to look at some biblical examples that will help us see this issue of doubt from some different perspectives so we can learn to deal with it in a healthy and appropriate way. The first example we're going to look at this morning comes from the life of Zechariah, a Jewish priest. And in Luke chapter 1, we learn about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They are good people. They are godly people. They're faithful Jews. They're obedient to God. And they want to have a child. That is the cry of their heart. They are desperate to become parents. And they have been praying about this one issue for years. And even though they've grown old, they've not stopped praying. However, Even though Zechariah still is praying, he's stopped believing. One day, as Zechariah is there in the Jewish temple fulfilling his priestly role, an angel suddenly appears. And we find the angel's announcement and Zechariah's response in verses 13 and 18 of Luke chapter 1. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Think about that. An angel shows up personally and says, I'm here with the answer. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. This angel is bringing Zechariah the exact answer that he and his wife want. It's a direct answer to a prayer they have offered for decades. Now, finally, they're going to have a child. And not just any child. Their son will grow into the man that we know as John the Baptist. But they're going to have child and now that he has received the answer he has craved Zechariah can't believe it the years of silence from God have have resulted in doubts that have paralyzed his faith and so he's continued to pray but no longer with any sense of expectation even though the answer has been delivered in this amazingly personal, amazingly supernatural way, he's not ready to accept it. He doubts that the angel's words can be true. I believe that Zechariah is demonstrating functional unbelief. His prayers say one thing, his actions and attitudes say another. And that is the exact situation that James warns about. 
you know, there are many times when you and I think, God is not answering my prayers. But I don't think the real issue is God. I think the issue is us. And sometimes when God speaks, we don't hear him because we're just not looking. As we go through our day, we're not looking to see what God might be doing. And sometimes when God speaks, we don't hear him because we have no expectation and we refuse to accept his answer. And sometimes, like Zechariah, we limit God based on our human knowledge and experience. How can we have a kid? We're too old. Not for God. How can a lavender-colored flower bloom in a barren pasture where nobody ever planted it? We can become double-minded, praying, yet not really believing. You and I need to believe what we pray. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that there won't be times where we wonder, where we have questions where we struggle with doubt. After all, we are finite beings dealing with an infinite God, so naturally there are going to be things that we won't understand and can't understand. And there will be times and situations and circumstances where we will struggle to trust and find it difficult to fully trust God. So we're never going to eliminate all of our doubts. What we need to do is learn how to handle them in an appropriate way. That's where the rubber meets the road. And how do we do that? We make the decision to lean on God even when we do doubt. We don't act like Zechariah. Instead, we continue to look to God for answers even when it's hard to believe. We continue to hold on to Him. And we find a great example of this in the story of a father who comes to Jesus seeking help for his son. And this amazing encounter is recorded for us in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 27. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now listen very carefully to this section. This part of the conversation is so critical. The father says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. 
Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. The context for this amazing story begins with the fact that Jesus and his three closest friends among the disciples, Peter, James, and John, have left for a while. They're off on a side mission, having their own unique experience. They've left the other disciples behind to do ministry. And when Jesus and the three guys return, they find the other disciples in the midst of a monumental spiritual failure. They are unsuccessfully trying to free a boy from affliction, the affliction of a demonic spirit. And as we see here in our passage, this evil spirit produces symptoms similar to epilepsy. And in this description, we see the ugliness and the destructiveness of Satan. God has made human beings in his image, but evil spirits love to corrupt that image. Satan will do anything possible to denigrate our God-given humanity. And so this spirit literally throws the boy around, causing him to thrash and foam at the mouth, and this spirit even tries to kill him because Satan loves to destroy. This boy's life is horrible, and his father must be in anguish. Few things in life are more difficult as a parent than watching your child suffer and struggle and knowing there's nothing you can do to help. And I'm sure this father probably has tried every avenue of healing, and yet his son is uncured. Now, the reputation of Jesus has been spreading. He's evidently heard that that, that Jesus and the disciples perhaps can offer some help to him and his son. And so he comes begging for help. And he probably views this as a last desperate chance for his son. And the disciples step in and they fail. They fail. Previously, they've had success. They've done this before. They have been able to free people from demonic affliction, but in this case, they can't do it. So Jesus steps in. And as I read this story and listen to this father, it it seems to me that he is clearly at the end of his rope. And that's why he says to Jesus, if you can help us, take pity on us. If? If, that's not much of a strong endorsement of Jesus' ability, is it? Now, Now think for just a minute how we respond when someone questions us or criticizes us or doubts us. That's a prime time for us to become defensive, to take offense, to justify ourselves, but Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't need to defend himself because he knows who he is and what he can do. And the issue here really isn't Jesus. The issue 
is the father's faith. And so Jesus challenges this man to believe. And in response, the father makes this profound reply, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I love the honesty of that statement. This man wants help for his son. He desperately wants help, but only part of him is able to believe that anything can really change. So he is painfully honest with Jesus about his inner struggle. He acknowledges the battle between doubt and trust that's taking place in his mind and in his heart and in his life. I think this father is describing a very human condition. And if we're honest, we need to acknowledge that there are times when you and I might feel exactly the way this father feels, where part of us believes and part of us struggles to believe. We are wrestling with doubt. And this man shows us the way forward. He does not allow the doubt to win. He deals with his doubts by continuing to look to Jesus. He doesn't turn his back on Jesus. He doesn't walk away from Jesus. He stays close to Jesus, watching and waiting to see what Jesus might do. There's a sense of expectation. And I believe that that's the fundamental difference between this man's response and the response of Zechariah. Zechariah was making a request but his doubts had caused him to stop believing. And the father makes his request, and he believes even in the midst of some doubts. And that's all Jesus needs. I don't know about you, but sometimes I tell myself that I have to have huge amounts of flawless faith for God to respond to my prayers. But that's just not true. You and I can be wrestling with belief and doubt, and yet God will hear and he will respond as long as we continue to look to him. And our example is the example of this father. And in response to his imperfect faith, Jesus sets his son free. Jesus restores this son as a human being made in the image of God. He gives him a life back. And Jesus does that in response to an honest request from a father, a request filled with both doubting and believing. What a great example for us to follow. Now, there's an interesting little postscript to this story recorded in verses 28 and 29. Because we need to remember that Jesus succeeded, but the disciples failed. And therefore, once they get alone with Jesus, they want to debrief. They want to know why they could not cast out this evil spirit. Let's take a look. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Remember, earlier in the story, Jesus had expressed great frustration with the lack of faith of his disciples. He said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I have to put up with you? 
And now he tells the disciples that their failure resulted from a lack of prayer. Jesus is forging a link between prayer and faith. And I believe it reminds us that the primary purpose of prayer is not to sit down with God and give him a list of requests and try to get God to do what we want him to do. The primary purpose of prayer is to spend time with God so we get to know him better. And the more we pray and deepen that connection with God, the more our connection with God grows, the more our faith will increase. Prayer always helps us to trust God more. And prayer reminds us that true power comes from God, not from ourselves. I I like to try and picture these disciples as they're trying to minister to this boy and set him free. And they, they likely command the evil spirit to leave, and it doesn't. So what do you do when you fail? You try harder. Isn't that what you and I do? We're not told how they do that, but I, I picture them perhaps changing the words of command. You know, in the name of Jesus, you must leave. No, that didn't work. And, okay, by the authority of Jesus. No, no, that didn't work. Okay, because Jesus is the Messiah, you must leave. But however they do it, it doesn't work. I, I, I imagine them getting louder and louder, maybe thinking the demon can't hear. You ever notice how we do that sometimes? If we're not communicating with someone, we just get louder. However they do it, setting someone free spiritually is not a matter of technique. It's not a matter of volume. It's not a matter of effort or getting the formula just right. It's a matter of prayer. It's always a matter of prayer. But particularly in a case like this where the enemy has such a deep-seated hold on someone's life. It's never about our effort and our power. It's about what God can do as we pray. And here's what is so important. When we pray and believe what we pray, we shift the focus. We shift the focus from ourselves to God. We shift the the reliance from ourselves to God. And we demonstrate that we trust God and we're refusing to let any questions or doubts derail us. And so if we try something and fail, the right response is not to try harder. The right response is to pray more. I believe that's true in every area of life. I believe it's particularly true in the spiritual dimension of life. We need to pray. And as someone told me between the services, we never can pray too much. And I really agree with that. These Bible passages give us a clear biblical principle and some vivid biblical examples to help us deal with doubt. When we pray, we need to believe in our prayers. We cannot let doubt drive us to functional unbelief like Zechariah did. And we can't let failure distract us from prayer, which is the mistake the disciples made. Instead, when you and I doubt, doubt, we need to find inspiration in the example of this father. We make our requests honestly. We admit our struggles to God and we don't walk away or turn away. 
We refuse to let doubt ever hinder us. We continue to look to God with a sense of great expectation, watching and waiting to see what our God might do. And believing beyond a shadow of a doubt that because we have prayed, God will do something. 